You are listening to the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Anirban. I lead a research group in Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany where we translate AI solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery. The purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced AI research from the Mikai Society. Here I talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of AI in healthcare. Opinion is whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. Extraordinary I am craving for the unusual thoughts, endless exploration without boundary, understanding the gift I should not fought. Invisible drawings in my mind, playing with the words in my head, my passion, the food of my soul. I feel so lucky, the random thoughts, a lifetime companion, a self-esteem builder, a goal planner, be my forever lifesaver. I write more, I talk less. I want to please, I chose to bore. What tickles me the most is to know what I am for. Thinking is my love. When my mind goes empty, that's when I hate. You are listening to a few selected verses from Enigma's Calling by Katrina Salem. Now we move on to today's episode of the podcast, AI Ready Healthcare. Hi everyone, this is really a very wonderful day here in Darmstadt. I'm Anirban, your host for AI Ready Healthcare, and today it's my pleasure to have Arijit here, Arijit Dr. Patra, as the more respectful way of saying it would be, is a recent graduate. He got his PhD from the University of Oxford, where he focused on medical imaging. He's a, one of the junior upcoming researchers from the Mikhai community. And today we will hear from him, his journey of academia and how he has shifted from academia to industry. So he has seen the both the perspectives. And this will be very interesting for all our young listeners who are early in their career during their PhD and how to really move from PhD towards the industrial aspects of research. So welcome, Arijit. Thank you, Professor Mukhopadhyay, for a brilliant introduction. I'm very stoked to hear that you are conducting such a podcast, and I wish we had something similar during my time as a PhD student. And I'm sure like this would be beneficial as a long series of different perspectives for you know junior researchers across the globe. So thanks a lot for doing that. I think this is probably the best use of uh, the COVID lockdowns that anyone has made of. <laughs> so thanks for this. Absolutely. Yeah. And there is nothing too bad to start, even if it's like a little bit late, it's still okay. That way, I totally agree with you. And I think that the young researchers of Mikai can benefit in many different ways from the podcast. So just because we started talking about you, uh, so maybe you can tell a little bit about yourself, who you are, how you have become who you are, how was your journey? Okay. So I'm Arjit Patra. I I'm currently an AI science specialist in imaging and data analytics within clinical pharmacology and safety sciences in AstraZeneca, primarily based in Cambridge, United Kingdom. Before this, I completed my PhD at the University of Oxford, where I worked on ultrasound image analysis with Professor Alison Nobel, uh, who was my PhD supervisor. And here I explored different themes pertinent to medical imaging as applied to fetal ultrasound, uh, ranging from fetal ultrasound video analysis to continual learning for fetal ultrasound and towards using sonographer cognition-related cues towards improving the analysis of ultrasound videos, such as sonographer gaze, audio, etc., as a part of our interdisciplinary project called Pulse that we had in Oxford, and that is still continuing. During this time, I also 
worked at Microsoft Research as a research intern in the healthcare intelligence group in Cambridge, where I worked on TCR sequence modeling. I used to work part-time at Shell at some points, which was not really medical imaging, but sort of was a more industrial exposure to different problems. And so that was a very good introduction towards the translational capabilities of the kind of techniques that we learn in medical imaging, such as a lot of the techniques that we use in 3D imaging is actually applicable in seismic imaging, for example. And also during all of this time, I was very active in the AI for social good community. You can find quite a few of my talks on YouTube, particularly around this theme. I gave talks at the AI for social good workshops and machine learning for the developing world workshops, machine learning for healthcare, and all of this at NeurIPS 20. 18, 2019, and also 2020. So as such, have had quite a bit of involvement outside of the immediate Mikai community as well. Before all of this, I completed my undergraduate and master's in a dual degree program in mechanical and aerospace engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology, IIT in Kharagpur. And during my last year there, I became a recipient of the Rhodes Scholarship, one of the five from India in for the class of 2016. And that's how I actually started my journey at the University of Oxford. And here I am, and that's briefly me in a nutshell. Wonderful. So let's say at the last thing that you said, which is about the Rhodes Scholarship. Now, I have very, let's say, overview once saw something in YouTube understanding of Rhodes Scholarship. So as far as I understood, this is, of course, very prestigious, one of the earliest scholarships in the, in the academia that is still going on. But also for me, it was more about the leadership in very general term. I didn't associate road scholarship too much with the technical research. So maybe that's totally my mistake, but I think somehow road scholarship is associated far too much with the world leaders, politicians, something like that. So can you give us a little bit of this perspective? Sure. So generally, I mean, if we take a bit of a historical perspective on that, the Rhodes scholarships were established by the will of Cecil Rhodes, who was a, I mean, was a fairly controversial figure in his time and continues to be so today. But broadly, in his will, uh, he laid down some criteria of who would be his prototype, you know, Rhodes scholar. And back in 1902, when the scholarship started, and raised a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of interest, as this was the first ever international fellowship of its kind. So it sort of was the precursor to all other uh, international fellowships that you have today. You have a multitude of them today. So in 1902, there was a very particular kind of person he wanted to be a scholar. You know, this person should, in his words, fight the world's fight, needs to have instincts to lead and needed to have like, you know, demonstrated ability and physical fitness and energy to excel in one's talents as evidenced by performance or, you know, superhuman performance in uh, pursuits like physical sports and so on and so forth. So that understanding of whom, what a leader needs to be and what a leader needs to do and what a leader needs to look like, that has gone a sea change in the last 100 and, you know, almost 120 years now. So in that sense, yeah, it has evolved a lot. There has been a lot of reinterpretation of the concept of leadership as understood by the Rhodes Scholarship. And consequently, there has been a lot of reinterpretation of the Rhodes Criteria as led down by the original will. Of course, I mean, there has been a lot of like more fundamental changes, like originally women were not included in Rhodes' vision. That changed to an act of parliament in 1977. Generally, the number of constituencies were fairly limited. That has significantly expanded now. In fact, there is a what is known as a global scholarship uh, every year for those constituencies that are not covered through other means. The number has gr grown up to 102 scholars now for the upcoming class. Even as early as 2016, when I joined Oxford, it was 89. So there has been a very strong evolution. And in that sense, the way the instincts to lead, or that phrase or the whole idea of leadership is understood, has been given a lot you know, broader interpretation in line with how things have evolved in the last 100 years. Today's leaders are not merely people who you know, sit across tables negotiating agreements to end wars, but they could as well be people sitting in, you know, venture capital boardrooms in this valley making billion dollar investments in a prospective unproven technology. So that kind of an understanding has shifted and has made room for a lot of us who traditionally may not, you know, have been the ideal road scholar in Cecil Road's mind to have, you know, joined the community. But historically, yes, there has been a fairly strong representation of STEM subjects in general. You have had Nobel laureates like Howard Florey, Edwin Hubble, very notably, not a Nobel laureate, but Edwin Hubble notably was a Rhodes Scholar. So 
you had you know some of these priorities very early on either way so as such like even i thought during my years as an undergrad that this was not something for somebody of my background as an engineer through and through was did not really have a lot of student politics experience either so i did not really see myself as one but i nevertheless applied i mean the reason i applied was very funny actually one of my seniors from college had applied and got into the final rounds and the final rounds in india that happens either in delhi or bombay and you have a dinner before the interview where all of the interviewers sort of interact with you over the dinner and these interviewers are really accomplished people i mean and in his year rahul dravid was on the selection committee so you had a dinner with rahul dravid and that was incentive enough for me to give it a try and that was actually the reason i applied for it so well uh, rahul dravid was not on my panel they were fairly accomplished people but not really the ones i would probably want to attend a dinner for to be honest with you but i got the scholarship that was almost something that was i had never planned for so the interesting thing about the scholarship is that you get the scholarship first and then you apply for your courses in the university unlike a lot of other scholarships that are tied to your courses and that also means that you essentially have a lot of flexibility to change courses and change preferences so i had started doing a phd in tidal power optimization in oxford very much tied to my original background as a mechanical and aerospace engineer in 3 months time i shifted to doing machine learning for medical imaging without any background in this subject in a decision that was labeled as borderline insanity by pretty much everyone i met but then again i thought that well i mean might as well do something i mean look i mean you, the thing is that if you do something that is not really conventional you succeed everyone praises you i mean really i mean you know people are happy you are happy that you succeeded in something that you never expected if you fail you can always say hey look i mean i tried something brave so yeah it always pays to do something that is not really expected as such so yes i mean that's how i ended up doing a phd and that was the journey and that was a very particular reason or very particular benefit of having a scholarship like roads is that it doesn't constrain you to a particular course or a particular line of study so that's what it is and yeah if you are watching and if you are a stem student in india or elsewhere where uh, you know you are not really you do not really see yourself as a student leader of some kind or as being interested in student politics in general remember that leadership doesn't have one particular color one particular definition it comes in in number of different forms and that definition is one of constant evolution so probably you are as good a fit as anybody else yeah very well summarized orijit so i basically also had no idea before about the details of the road scholarship and how i guess in the in the modern world the definition of leader is changing from the alpha male to something which is much more nuanced so i'm really happy that knowing from you the other aspiring scientists researchers can actually benefit from many such opportunities roads is of course one of those i should brief also mention that you talked about rahul dravid <laughs> not many people know about him so he is one of the cricketing greats from india he was a former captain of the indian national team and those who are from the cricketing world i don't have to explain what rahul dravid is so yeah if you don't know about him and you know about cricket then you don't know about cricket actually <laughs> wonderful so i guess moving ahead you said during uh, your research in oxford you also did lots of extra research in the industrial position so it was never like only phd topic and one of these was basically in the microsoft research uh, where you work on different healthcare projects can you tell us a little bit about that experience yes so this was actually uh, so as a research intern uh, for 3 months in 2019 this is a part of the standard internship process that they have uh, microsoft research has for bringing in you know early career researchers like phd students and so on so you are assigned a project you are assigned a mentor and you sort of are assigned a problem to work on uh, which may be a part of a larger problem and the actual arrangement can vary a lot but generally you do spend 3 months in one of msr labs observe how industrial research works and how the, you know the r&d to product transition might work out over future iterations and so on and generally learn a lot about how it is like to work in a you know with a, with industrial deadlines as opposed to academic ones or you know you do have a lot of kind of a mixture of the two in a industrial research lab like this so you you target pretty much uh, similar conferences with or uh, you target maybe you know uh, similar uh, objectives at certain times but you also have this other other kinds of objectives and other kinds of deadlines and requirements that you need to keep abreast of 
So that was something that was like something to learn from and observe. You do not really see a lot of things being a PhD student that you would see in industry otherwise. And so it was a good experience for three months. Also, Microsoft takes care of its interns quite well. I mean, you do get a lot of like trips in and around the area you are based. Like we had trips to Bletchley Park in Cambridge. Then we had trips to observatories around Cambridge, around Cambridge town itself. I mean, it was not a lot of novelty for me because I mean, I'm from Oxford, so I don't really care too much about Cambridge as a town. But generally, if you are from somewhere outside of the UK, I mean, you do get a lot of room to explore and a lot of room to learn from your peers. You do get to attend all of the Microsoft research talks, which is a fantastic initiative, something that I learned from and I tried replicating here in AstraZeneca, in fact. So, and also you do have access to all of the different mentors. I mean, some of them leading names in the field. You actually can schedule meetings with them and talk to them. So overall, yeah, it's a very intellectually stimulating experience. So yeah, that was a good experience for those three months. And I think this is the time in which the internships actually occur. So do give it a try. I mean, during your PhD, I think taking three months out for an internship is a good idea to the extent possible and permitted by your uh, university. Yes, I totally agree with you on this one aspect that doing internship, research internships in top industrial research lab during PhD is a very nice experience. I personally can attest because I worked once in Siemens Corporate Research in Princeton and another time in Mitsubishi Electrical Research Lab in Cambridge both in the American part, not the Cambridge of UK, but both were really amazing experiences. So I can totally attest to the experience that you had. Now, uh, bringing back to the question of your actual PhD research, and you said it was about fetal ultrasound and you have developed uh, AI deep learning techniques as well as some of the continual learning techniques uh, there. But before going into the technicalities of it, can you give us a motivation of why this is uh, an important clinical problem itself? So generally, one of the preeminent modalities of diagnosis during pregnancies is ultrasound. So the reason for that is most other imaging modalities are constrained by inherent limitations. So for example, with respect to CT scans or with x-rays, you have this issue of, you know, radiation uh, might affect the health and well-being of the fetus as it is developing over the course of like the gestation period. With modalities like MRI, you have issues like, say, there could be uh, concerns around heat generation. And also even with more recent innovations, this aspect has been ameliorated to a certain degree. The maneuverability that you have with MRI scanners is highly limited. So as a result, uh, ultrasound with its you know durability and with its flexibility as a imaging solution becomes a preeminent modality of care for prognostic and diagnostic interventions for a developing fetus. So as such, ultrasound is something of interest across the obstetric world for most routine assessments. And for mostly, depending on the health system, you would have three scans at least, at the very least, spread across the three trimesters. So the first scan would usually be a dating scan in the first trimester. So in the dating scan, you would measure the CRL and you would probably do other kinds of assessments like neutral translucency and so on. In the second trimester, it would typically be some kind of a scan for the assessment of like possible anomalies in the fetus or making other kinds of diagnostic evaluations. In the UK, that is called the FASP, Fetal Anomaly Scanning Program, typically done between 16 to 20 weeks. And then in the third trimester, you would have a growth scan. So... My data primarily concerned with the second trimester scans, really. So the fetal anomaly scanning program, FASP uh, scanning regimes. Here, there could be several different subtasks that are clinically appropriate. Some of these might pertain to biometry, say, for example, measurements of your standard you know, circumference planes, like the head circumference plane, the abdominal circumference plane, the femur length, and so on and so forth. So for which you would actually be detecting those and measuring those circumferences after detecting some of these standard planes. Say you'd be measuring the abdominal circumference in the abdominal circumference plane, the head circumference in the HCP or the head circumference plane and the femur length in the femur length plane, let's say. So identifying these standard planes is crucial. Similarly, uh, when you talk about other kinds of anomaly detection in terms of, you know, the developing fetus, one key area of concern is congenital heart diseases. So detection of cardiac anomalies in this between the 16 to 20 week scan becomes crucial because congenital heart diseases typically are a key contributor to infant mortality worldwide. So early detection can enable early intervention or can actually provide 
sort of clinical inputs towards a decision about the kind of interventions that may need to be taken or the kind of you know decisions that may need to be taken down the line. So performing this kind of anomaly scanning is integral to offering optimal clinical decision support for pregnancies in the second trimester and beyond. So as such, clinically ultrasound image analysis and prospective diagnostic evaluation based on the inputs of such an analysis is crucial. What happens is that despite the importance of you know, ultrasound image analysis, ultrasound video analysis, there is a significant dearth of both capital equipment like scanners, et cetera, and more crucially of the relevant expertise, having expert sonographers and fetal cardiologists and so on. This deficit is particularly pronounced in the developing world in the global south, but even in a more well-equipped hospital, say, you know, somewhere in Western Europe, you do not really have a very optimal sonographer to patient demand ratio in a lot of different situations. So as such, there is a strong case for offering assistive technologies to sonographers to make them more efficient and to the extent practicable offering solutions that can automate parts of the sonography workflow to you know, reduce the time constraint on individual sonographers at the clinic. Now, with respect to the clinical, you know, the capital equipment part, there is a reason for optimism there. You do have players like Butterfly Network, Clarius, et cetera, coming up with mobile ultrasound probes that can be plugged into, you know, using a USB system to some, say something like your standard smartphone. And you effectively end up having something like a sonography machine in the pocket and so on. So with the maturity of that technology on the horizon, I would anticipate barrier to entry for establishing a sonography clinical system gets significantly reduced, provided you can somehow address the deficit in expertise, or at least make you know, the available experts a lot more efficient or actually make them a lot more optimal in terms of the time they spent per patient. So this is where the business case or let's say the clinical case or the technological case in fact is made for having AI augmented solutions for sonography. And that is why I think this is fundamentally a very important area of research for the Mikai community, for the medical imaging and the broader medical physics community, and has a lot of room for contribution from both the MIC and the CHI communities, in fact. So I think that sort of AI augmented obstetric ultrasound is something that would see a lot of interest, you know, over time in future. It has already, you know, you have you do see an increasing number of papers year on year in Mikai, so which is I think a good sign. And also beyond obstetrics, ultrasound diagnosis is very prominent in a lot of different situations. Like I talked about the flexibility of an ultrasound system that makes it a modality of choice, say, in emergency rooms as well. Like say in the golden hour that a patient arrives following an accident, the first pass of diagnostics is often done using an ultrasound scanner because of the flexibility of it. You do have ultrasound guided sort of uh, therapies being prominent, say, when you aspirate for different conditions and so on and so forth. So I think, yeah, even on a broader scale, like sort of AI augmentation in this ultrasound space is something that is going to see a lot of interest. It's a challenging modality, no doubt. More than any other modality, I would say that ultrasound is often more challenging. We have a significantly high level of artifacts. We have things like shadows and enhancements. You have the presence of speckle in ultrasound. So when compared to something like an MRI or a CT or you know similar modalities, ultrasound is often more challenging to algorithmically parse to obtain you know meaningful insights. So there is a challenge, there is a benefit, and there is a need for research innovations in this space, I would say. Wonderful. Thank you so much for summarizing the motivation of your research. I mean, I must congratulate you on the fact that you actually know why you are doing what you are doing, because quite often in Mikai community, we meet people who just saw something which is really cool in one of the machine learning and computer vision conferences and then just thought of, okay, why not implement this and write another Mikai paper? And this yeah. gets through because of similar-minded reviewers, area chairs, I'm guessing. Yeah. But really, nobody asks the basic question of utility to the healthcare, utility to the patient. Like the first word of 
Mikai's medical, right? So, so that basically means AI is fine. Methodologies, technicalities are important. Those are the communities about, but it has to have a general question about the healthcare. I'm so happy to hear that you know exactly that question and the possibilities where it can make a difference. I guess one particular thing you mentioned in the earlier parts is that even when in the, let's say, the developed world, the ratio is so low and the quality of the sonographer is so important here because of the clinical parameters that you are getting from the images, they are rather like, in a way, they are very primitive. So, I mean, I can attest to that because I now have a six months old. So I have a very vivid memory of how his scans were done. And I still remember the sonographer is basically kept on trying until she was more or less satisfied with the view or the cross-section of the head circumference. And then she basically clicked and drew a sort of uh, elliptic circular thingy on the screen. So if that is really the quality of the software support that the sonographers have currently in the day-to-day practice. I can imagine that even here in the developed world, it's a real problem. It's definitely a bigger challenge. So can you tell us a little bit about the main parts where AI can immediately benefit the sonographers doing ultrasound? Well, I mean, that's a good question because, you know, when we say to what extent AI can benefit sonographers, there is also a concern around, you know, other kinds of general concerns around the algorithm itself, the generalizability of it and say the performance of it and things like that. But those questions being kept aside, the thing that you described, what the sonographer there was trying to do was essentially trying to locate a standard plane, Look, in this case, locating the, heads, the head circumference plane. So there are sort of like standard best practices on what a good head circumference plane looks like. And one thing to factor in is that the fetus moves around fairly randomly. That happens even during the scanning. So it's a bit of a game that you play to actually arrive at a particular uh, standard plane where you feel by your judgment and experience that this is good enough to make the measurement that you are seeking, in this case, the head circumference. And based on the guidelines that ISEOG, international sonographers, you know, international sonographers, obstetricians and gynecologists, they come up with what are known as the IUSOG practice guidelines. So basically sonographers go by that and they, when they look for a plane, they, based on their experience and understanding, try to conform that to the kinds of images that are suitable. So that is what they're, they're trying to do at that point. In this one case, I think it's a simple solution that identifies a standard plane with a reasonable degree of confidence. So if you could actually have that in the loop and were able to give an assistive feedback that, okay, so you are close to a standard plane, essentially the whole, you know, science of probe guidance, essentially. So that is something where, you know, you can have rudimentary solutions that can sort of help to a certain degree, I would say. The other aspect is the biometry itself. So a lot of my colleagues were working on developing pipelines using sonographer gaze as a prior for better biometry automation tools. That is something uh, that can potentially see a lot of assistive improvement using some of these AI augmented solutions. So for example, like predicting the head circumference, et cetera, or at least sort of being able to delineate the cranium of the, of the head in the standard plane. So I think these are some areas where there can be some assistive improvements provided say in this particular step where there is a manual you know point-based identification of the cranial area you can have uh, some kind of a segmentation algorithm that offers you a tentative you know the cranial region that the sonographer can then autocorrect somehow so basically active learning kind of a pipeline that can be deployed without particularly you know making the algorithmic judgment final So I think those are some areas where there is a lot of potential for deployment and a lot of potential for saving effort and time. So that is something that I think is something that where things are ripe, particularly in this context. The other thing to note is when you move to the developing world or when you move to low resource context, essentially, there is a lot of scope for innovation there because here we face a unique trade-off that we want to you know, make the best use of the limited skill sets that are available in the clinic and also make the best use of the relatively low spec hardware that we have. So the exact accuracy uh, requirements are sort of balanced by other kinds of requirements that we have as well. So here, I mean, something like uh, an automation of the what is known as the six-step obstetric protocol, which was devised by WHO for performing a quick you know, sort of obstetric diagnosis without requiring a 
highly equipped lab or a highly equipped technician. So something like that can see a fair amount of automation through AI-based pipelines. That is something where I think there is a room for effort. The lab that I was in in Oxford, they do some work around this and they work around sort of, you know, exploring potential translational opportunities with partners in India and Africa as well. So I think that is something of interest to our community. Thank you so much. I think you just briefly described three very distinct directions, which has a lot of potential. So I guess the obvious question to ask now would be, what were the problems that you were tackling in particular in your PhD and what were the technical requirements there? Right. So I was more of an algorithms person during my PhD, I would say. So when I started my PhD, and this was in January 2017, I started with a data set that was curated earlier, and this was a fatal echocardiography data set. This was still a time when uh, applying deep learning for this kind of a problem was at its infancy. So we had to you know, start and define a lot of the rubrics ourselves. So a lot of the technical problems concerned around understanding how to best use available deep learning solutions and benchmark them on the fatal echocardiography data across different hardware, et cetera. And then what kind of innovations we could come up with, what kind of design choices we could come up with, or what kind of technical you know, developments that we could make to have models that are actually suitable for our kinds of ultrasound data that we deal with. Because most of the research till then was very heavily focused on natural images, and that was not really what we could do or what we, where we could go much with. So a lot of the technical challenges there were around understanding the inner workings of a lot of these algorithms, sort of trying to establish the, I mean, I would not say causality in a machine learning sense, but in a broader sense, the cause and effect understanding of why things were working or why things were failing the way they were. So And and we did not really have a lot of scientific evidence available for these methods, and we still don't today, by the way. And so we, we had to essentially, there was a lot of engineering iterations, I would say, in developing and adapting these pipelines. So effectively, it was a very steep learning curve because a lot of the standard packages that were available, a lot of the GPU support, et cetera, were also not very well ironed out as it is today, if at all it is, I would say. But that uh, setting up all of these involved a lot of time working in the trenches, essentially trying to set up these engineering pipelines in order and eventually uh, progressing on to developing novel algorithms and novel you know, scientific protocols for assessing our kinds of images using uh, a broadly a deep learning framework. So. I worked on sort of building a pipeline for long-range video-based identification of standard planes. So this was a subject of a paper that I had in DLMIA 2017. The idea was to essentially be able to parse uh, sequential data, basically videos, without using a recurrent system. So that was a key aspect there. So I developed a hierarchical temporal encoding strategy for that. Then the next challenge was to actually locate different cardiac structures in the fourth chamber view the foramen oval, the mitral and the tricuspid valves, the left and the right ventricular valves, the septal wall, and so on. So basically, and to track their motion across the end systole to the end diastole, you know, the whole cardiac cycle, essentially. So we basically came up with a tracking by detection algorithm for doing that. It was a subject of ISB-19 paper. Worked quite a bit on uh, continual learning. So till then, continual learning as a topic or catastrophic forgetting as a concern was not really explored for ultrasound imaging was also very sparsely explored for medical imaging. There were only two papers at the time that did explore catastrophic forgetting in a medical imaging context. And one of them was this paper from Leonid Keep and Learn uh, on x-rays. And then one was, there was something from Christian Baumgartner's group uh, with his student on MRI segmentation. And so I basically came up with this whole analysis of catastrophic forgetting for fetal ultrasound images uh, and also came up with some pipelines, how to best address and how to best control catastrophic forgetting and enable continual learning, incremental learning in these situations. So that was something that I worked on. Also managed to tie explainability in a continual learning setting with the hypothesis that a decline in the quality of saliency maps can be seen as a proxy for forgetting in a medical imaging context, which is vital because very often like models become so dependent on you know, very particular artifacts on ultrasound images, it becomes difficult to ascribe the ability of the model to understand anything clinically relevant at all. So enabling some kind of an explainability-based prior to an incremental learning pipeline is vital to better understand catastrophic forgetting. Uh, this was a paper in MIUA19. Also, I subsequent to that uh, worked on the Pulse project for a bit, sort of used sonographer eye tracking data 
converted into gaze maps. We had protocols to convert those into gaze maps using uh, truncated Gaussian. And I used that in a model compression context. The operating hypothesis here was that if we talk about you know learning better representations, and if we can agree that you know we would be learning better representations using extra human level priors, so some kind of an expert level priors. So is it not the case that if I could cast that representation in a teacher-student distillation framework, the lightweight model that I train as a student should be many times more efficient as compared to a situation when the representation that it is distilled with was trained with you know, a single data point or a single image level prior. So with this very simple hypothesis, we set out exploring and how best to integrate the gaze data. Basically, the gaze was essentially a proxy for or a model for the human expert attention. And when we were combining the gaze with the image, uh, that was essentially we sort of accentuating those specific clinical parts of the image that are most relevant to a human judgment of a particular condition. And we're using that to basically learn better representations that are more faithful to the actual clinical workflow. And then we cast that in a teacher-student framework and the lightweight models that we trained in this regard, which could, by the way, function with the, you know, the single image input as well. And we found those to be a lot more efficient. I mean, the best performing models could attain accuracies within 5% of the heavier teacher models despite a close to a thousand X reduction in the memory footprint. So that was a good insight into the potential for using sonographer cognition towards, you know, solving essentially what are machine learning challenges. In this case, model compression is very much a machine learning challenge. And using this human expert knowledge or human insights is equally applicable in a lot of other domains, even outside of medical imaging. That was a very strong insight. So these are some of the broad themes that I worked on, sort of, you know, video analysis, continual learning and integration of sonographer cognitive priors and so on. And in Oxford, you need up to like close to three contributions to be able to write your thesis and defend it. And so I did that. I submitted my thesis two days before the first lockdown in 2020. Then I defended uh, in the middle of the lockdown in June last year. So I was examined by Bernard Kynes and Vishen Degrau. Then I got a minor corrections and then got my leave to supplicate, which is the Oxford way of saying that, okay, you have your degree uh, in November last year. So that was basically the roadmap. Wonderful. So I guess, I mean, you have these three different directions, like basically because of the time, we can't really go into any or all of the directions, basically, because the AstraZeneca part is coming up. But a quick question I had is sort of the fact that your PhD advisor, you said, was Professor Alison Noble. And Professor Noble is probably one of the most preeminent researchers when it comes to the entire ultrasound modality and medical image computing in this modality. And you walked closely with her in a group which probably has a lot of know-hows which a typical group starting on tap. So how was that real experience for you? Well, I mean, that is something to note that, you know, you do benefit from existing institutional knowledge in the group. You do have questions that you can find people to almost immediately answer and provide insights that you hadn't thought about before. So, that part is definitely true. And as an experience, I think that does tend to accelerate your own way of thinking and your own way of coming up with new problems to solve. So that is something that's beneficial, I would say. Like when you have, uh, you know, postdocs who are in their own right, are experts in their own fields, probably the professor is, you know, she is very, very well known. She is a preeminent scholar uh, in this field and generally, and the kind of, environment that you have in the lab that allows you to bounce back and forth on a lot of these questions that are typically you'd not have thought about if not for you know this background or this knowledge so that it is definitely something that you do figure out very quickly wonderful so i guess then we can move on a bit towards the current part of your journey and you finished your PhD in Oxford, you got the doctorate and then you moved to AstraZeneca. You are still doing research, I guess, but in a a very different environment, I would think. So can you tell us about the transition? So I started working in AstraZeneca last year. I also briefly worked at a startup called Four Earth Intelligence for a bit, you know, between my submission and my viva really. 
InfoEarth Intelligence is a satellite imaging startup. We built machine learning workflows for retrospectral satellite images. But for AstraZeneca, I've been working with AstraZeneca since August last year, mostly working from home so far. Uh, have been to the office precisely three times and two of those to actually get my vaccine doses. So it has been a, a very interesting journey. And I think uh, AstraZeneca as a company, I mean, there is a very strong value towards, you know, following the science. I mean, that is something that is one of AstraZeneca core values that we follow the science. And a practical realization of following the science is that you do see a lot of practices and best protocols that you internalized as a researcher in academia being followed and being sort of expanded upon even in this environment. So that is something that made the transition a lot smoother, I would say, in a lot of ways. Now, purely in terms of the research, yes, this is uh, the kind of research topics that I concern myself with. The application domains are slightly different compared to what I had experienced before. And I must say not very common or not very well appreciated in the Mikai community. I mean, I, I have not never seen a preclinical imaging paper in any Mikai so far, but I could be wrong and I'd be happy to be wrong. So that way, I, I guess it's not that prominent despite its fundamental importance as a scientific domain. And it's, you know, it's a vital domain in the pharmaceutical industry or even beyond because a lot of the, you know, safety and efficacy analysis is heavily reliant on preclinical image analysis or even more broadly, uh, preclinical safety studies based on analysis of multimodal data, not restricted to images alone. So that is something to actually note at. Now, purely in terms of the kind of work that I do, yes, I mean, there is a research component. There is a component towards understanding therapeutic area requirements and building solutions and delivering analysis over acquired data for different therapeutic agents or different studies or different other requirements. And also beyond that, I do a lot of work around engaging different stakeholders, understanding requirements from the wet lab scientists and from the business representatives, from the business leaders and so on, and sort of translating those into data science and machine learning questions, and sort of also work with a lot of imaging scientists who do the actual data acquisition, trying to figure out the best practices that are most appropriate for them, the actual relevance of the different solutions we develop and understanding their pain points and optimizing those and working with them to basically ensure that the analysis that is required for a particular therapeutic area or a particular drug project, for example, is delivered on time and delivered to a quality that actually can meaningfully help decisions in that space. Beyond that, also, there is a lot of work that goes on around building platforms for preclinical analysis, for let's say 3D imaging, for actually building uh, best practices around deployment and productionization of data science workflows, establishing MLOps practices, with a very pharma requirement in mind, I would say, to put it very broadly there. I also work a lot on mentorship. I do, I organize extensive mentorship sessions, both personally and in teams. So have delivered a lot of different talks on different machine learning topics around self-supervised learning, continual learning, around things like best practices on version control, etc., on green AI and so on and so forth. Organize external speaker series, conduct recruitment, mentor graduate data scientists, and also sort of let's try to establish license with external collaborators and so on and so forth. But purely on the research side, because there is a research component to all this, I work extensively on self-supervised learning and continual learning for preclinical imaging, on developing pipelines for 3D imaging and explainability in 3D imaging. So a lot of the preclinical imaging is actually in 3D, particularly in vivo preclinical imaging. We actually also very actively encourage publishing, unlike what you would normally expect of industry, but we actually do have a very good publishing culture, I would say. In fact, I published something in ISB this year. I We have a paper in Mikai coming up, one early accept in Mikai. We have other papers in the pipeline as well. So a lot of these also deal with clinical imaging. So I do some work with clinical imaging still. Like a lot of the pipelines that we develop for preclinical imaging can sometimes be repurposed for clinical imaging workflows and can be used at other parts of the, you know, the drug discovery, validation, assessment, and rollout pipelines. Although you have a requirement for both preclinical and clinical image analysis in the whole ideas to patient process, really. So that is sort of like in a brief, what kind the kind of work that I do in AstraZeneca. There isn't exactly a very strong, well-cut-out definition, I would say, which is good. It allows a lot of room and a lot of liberty for exploration. So that's uh, that's something that is a huge plus, I would say. Also, I got introduced to the whole world of preclinical imaging here in AstraZeneca. So I would just, 
you know, in a bid to sort of arouse interest in the Mikai community, I would want to sort of make a bit of a case for preclinical imaging, really. I mean, okay, so before that, I mean, what is preclinical and what is clinical here? So essentially, when you talk about, say, a drug validation cycle, I mean, after you have generated your leads, you know, to put it the most broadly possible, before you start your clinical trials, your phase zero, one, two, three, three, a three B, all of that, and the go-to-market phases and all of that, before all of that, it is important and it is vital to estimate the safety profiles of a particular candidate. It is even very, very important to understand efficacy and other kinds of, you know, such parameters that define such efficacy for particular molecules. Say you could do studies for understanding the pharmacokinetics of a drug. You could do studies for different other, you know, sort of interaction characteristics of a particular molecule. And more importantly, from a safety perspective, it's important to understand the physiological impact, to put it broadly, on different, you know, animal models for a particular sort of candidate. It's also important also to understand the, the tox profile or the toxicologic profile for a particular candidate. The question is, how do you understand that? There are a lot of ways. I mean, there is a lot of data that we curate. I mean, there is a, there are a lot of studies that we can do around understanding drug safety, say, understanding optimal cutoffs and so on and so forth. One of those essentially happens through imaging. Now, imaging can be both in vivo and ex vivo in this context. You can have in vivo preclinical imaging, you can have ex vivo preclinical imaging. So you do in vivo preclinical imaging primarily to understand the physiological impact of a particular candidate on different animal models, say on rats, on mice, on higher mammals, and so on. You do ex vivo preclinical imaging for understanding you know, tissue level impact of you know, particular candidates such, such as the emergence of lesions, emergence of necrosis, and so on and so forth. So the modalities of choice are different in both. For example, for in vivo preclinical imaging, we primarily deal with MRI and PET scans and CT with different applications for different needs. So with ex vivo, it is primarily H and E histopathology. We have a very we have a very very strong interest in his histopathology as applied to toxicologic pathology. Then there are uh, modalities like mass spec imaging. We do MSI. We do immunohistochemistry on this uh, sort of these sections that are obtained for different tissues. Then there is a lot of other kinds of you know pipelines around imaging mass cytometry, IMC, and so on and so forth. So the goals of in vivo and ex vivo imaging are slightly different. In in vivo imaging, it is primarily the assessment of physiological markers. Uh, say, for example, we could be measuring the cardiac so ejection fraction as a response to a particular candidate through MRI scanning and measuring, you know, sort of the left ventricle volume in a in an end systole to end diastole cycle for something like mice. Could be doing things like uh, tracking the emergence of lesions over extended time in animal models, uh, say lung lung tumor models and so on in gems, genetically engineered mouse models, for example. You for in ex vivo imaging, conversely, the focus could be sort of identification of tissue level effects after the animal has been sacrificed essentially and you have sectioned the tissues for different organs and different anatomical regions so here it could be things like estimating at the cellular profile in a tumor microenvironment it could be the studies of emergence of lesions and in response to sort of accumulation of a particular candidate or a therapeutic agent in a particular tissue region for which you do mass spec imaging and you'd co-register that with uh, the histopathology equivalent for that tissue section and so on. So overall, I think, you know, this is a domain that is fascinating, that it's a domain that is fundamentally important for the drug discovery and the drug validation process. And as a result, this is a domain that I think there is a lot of room for innovation and a lot of room for expertise being deployed here from the MIC and the CHI community. That is how I see it. Because today, one of the key developments in toxicologic pathology is actually the emergence of AI and translating the developments that AI has brought around in digital pathology to toxicologic pathology. So effectively, digital image analysis has a great potential to assist the toxicologic pathologist with the daily workflow that they would engage in. I mean, I can quote you a few figures here. Uh, in 2019, for example, toxicologic pathologists at Charles River Laboratories, which is one of the largest companies working in this research area, is a CRO for a lot of uh, different other companies. They evaluated over 4 million microscopic slides in support of these safety assessment studies. So that is the scale that we are talking about. And the evaluation of these slides, I mean, once again, a figure, this is from a pharma manufacturing or trade journal, really. The evolution of these slides actually required approximately 70,000 person hours for CRL. And 
these were critical for a lot of their clients in, in you know and i can I, I cannot stress enough how critical these uh, studies are and so these findings need to be identified and then needs to be a very reproducible diagnostic scoring and that requires additional effort including you know peer reviews and peer to peer consultations from secondary opinions from other pathologists as well then there are complicated cases that require further attention then of course there is this whole idea of making this as interpretable as possible and then there are you know often requirements for multiple diagnoses then there are you know requirements for quality assurance then there is a you know other kinds of requirements that always crop up over the whole you know life cycle of the development process so overall i mean there is a lot of lot of room for actually having some interventions and applying some of the best practices that we have developed for deploying artificial intelligence solutions in the medical imaging space or in the computer vision space and adapting those to you know sort of this preclinical image analysis in general toxicologic image analysis or toxicologic pathology and in vivo image analysis in particular and also towards multimodal integration with other kinds of data streams that is very often curated in a lot of this process i mean the ideas to patient process the whole drug discovery to identification to assessment of safety to validation to trial to market that whole process generates a very very rich repository of data and i think that we are at a fairly early stage when you know the story that these data points can tell us is barely being read out so i think there is a lot of room for the community to get engaged in preclinical imaging in this space as well hopefully i mean mikai would you know be less focused on the medical part of mikai and you know take a lot you know a broader purview there thank you arjit this was really a nice summary first of all i i think mikai in general would be super interested in preclinical imaging i don't have a doubt in my mind that's the case although i totally agree with you that you haven't seen much preclinical imaging work in mikai but i guess that's probably a big part of it is that if you just think of the technologies that we develop in the mikai world and how it comes into the presentation and stuff so basically these technologies can benefit big pharma right who has like as you said if you have 4 million slides and you don't have really always trained pathologists keep on doing these annotations and stuff that's where this sort of ai technology can benefit in faster throughput and all now the question really is that also it's part of the big pharma has to be interested in hiring ai scientists and medical imaging researchers who has a background if that crosstalk is not happening i mean i personally without naming names i can tell you a personal experience of another big pharma where i had a chat about a, i think about 2 years ago from now and at that point they were looking for a head of ai research and they somehow were interested in developing ai specific hardwares because of for some very convoluted reasons that the person who is recruiting this particular head of ai research thought important i was like so lost at his arguments that what are you doing there are real problems out there i mean there are of course pharma as you said who are really interested in the chemical part of it so really how to do fast drug discovery and stuff like that so that's one part but really the medical imaging and ai part has a massive role to play and i guess one part where i can immediately see benefit is the throughput but can you tell us a little bit about what are the other benefits that an ai based let's say pipeline can bring well i mean an ai based pipeline can benefit in significant ways i mean it can fundamentally change uh, the outlook on a lot of different process in this industry in my understanding now yes of course throughput is but one part of it like you know sort of improving the throughput and improving the processing times for different aspects improving quality assurance for different you know data sets and so on and so forth so yes that's that's something that is that absolutely critical i mean that is something where you would probably have a lot of uh, innovation going forward but then again like i mean when you say ai in a pharma space that is a very broad field really we have a lot of lot of innovation today in drug development plus ai there is a even this whole in this town of oxford there are probably i think around 15 ai for drug development startups today 
and one of them Accenture is actually about to go public from what I heard I mean it seems that's the chatter here and so and that space is flush with venture funds and there are big companies who are in this fray there are collaborations that a lot of us have uh, you know in this space and so on and so forth so that's definitely one very prominent part of where things are about discovering leads using AI-based solutions or generating new molecules or you know candidate molecules using generative models, for example, or basically using you know sort of chemically informed machine learning or chemoinformatics to come up with some designer molecules with appropriate properties and so on and so forth. So that that part is very active. Then there is this whole other pipelines around say safety. So interpretation of safety data or sort of having predictive safety analytics or actually sort of redesigning safety workflows durably in response to, you know, emerging data data streams, sort of online learning of safety, so to speak. So a lot of preclinical image analysis, like actually identifying pathologically relevant markers in, you know, lesions, actually able to quantify the drug perfusion across, you know, different you know, sort of tissue regions using MSI data, for example. So all of these things, I mean, these have been standard parts of the workflow for a while. And with uh, AI-based solutions, there is a lot of room for acceleration of the science that we can derive or the insights that we can actually derive from the data that we have. So that's, you know, sort of improving the quality of insights, the quality of analysis and the, the level of insights that we can go into, for example. Say, for example, with uh, something like a co-registration based approach, I mean, not even using very extensive machine learning workflows, you can come up with solutions that can drastically improve the development times. So that's that's something that, I mean, apart from obviously the efficiency gains and the throughput gains that are caused, then on top of that, there are obvious, you know, candidates in terms of, say, analysis of large-scale trials data, analysis of anomalies, anomaly detection for, you know, different data sets and so on and so forth. Then there is this whole idea of like business analytics around the marketing side or post-market surveillance. So all the data science and analytics and the commercial analytics phase or the customer data analytics and so on and so forth. Those are, you know, the other end of the spectrum. Even apart from this, I mean, this is not really restricted to imaging. Even for, say, a lot of natural language pipelines are so useful when analyzing historical reports or historical trials data or conversion of you know data types when submitting to regulators and so on and so forth or mining through large reserves or large you know large literature sets to arrive uh, to actually identify you know sort of segments of interest something that has been very prominent in recent times so that that is itself such a significant improvement compared to where we were say 5 years back so then there are studies around knowledge graphs and then there are studies around sort of knowledge discovery in databases. So I think the whole AI data science stack, as we have learned in the last 50 years or so, all of that finds a reasonable conclusion in the ideas to patient pipeline in a pharma setup. So it's it's just a question of what kind of stories we would be telling going forward and what kind of uh, priorities the storytellers are going to have increasingly really. So I think there has been a significant amount of learning that has been gained in recent years and things have become streamlined over the years as across different industries and increasingly uh, there is a lot more understanding of requirements and a lot more optimism around the kind of things that we can do with you know our own rich tranches of data using you know sort of well-crafted algorithms and well-crafted processes and pipelines in place so I'm, i'm optimistic about where we would be going forward here Thank you so much. This is really a nice summary of where the next set of questions are. We are almost at the end of our chat. So I will ask the last question. So if let's say in the next five years, you don't have to worry about anything else and can do whatever research questions within this framework that you can choose and do, what would be the big vision? What would you personally like to solve? Hmm, good question. So personally, assuming like this was an ideal world, I mean, and there was, uh, you know, no constraint whatsoever. Personally, I mean, and this kind of ties to my background as a as a mechanical engineer who extensively dabbled in fluid mechanics and thermodynamics back in the day. Personally, I would love to build pipelines that sort of hasten the numerical solutions for uh, Navier-Stokes equations. I mean, I would not say have a general solution because that is uh, once again a clay problem. That's very aspirational. But of course, the sky is the limit there. But generally, uh, enable you know obtaining or accelerating the numerical solvability of these systems, and sort of integrate that with image level priors for understanding of tumor microenvironments and understanding of like you know 
biological fluid dynamics using both imaging and non-imaging markers in a data science framework along with sort of you know numerical solutions to the actual fluid mechanics that governs the physical system so that is something that would be a long-term quest if i did not have to worry about paying my bills or doing anything else so that is something i would look at for one part of it at least you know towards actually exploring uh, some questions around turbulence or some aspects of the numerical solution we do see some work coming out of nvidia recently professor animan anand kumar's uh, group for example there they have been working on using you know gans for understanding sort of wake formation dynamics in sort of some of these turbulent flow regimes i mean i worked on microfluidics back in my undergrad so it would be good to be able to integrate you know sort of biological fluid dynamics in microchannels for example with imaging data that we have for tumor microenvironments and so on so basically marrying microfluidics and nanofluidics with deep learning that would be something very aspirational wonderful so on that awesome note of solving partially differential equations with learning based approaches and making things happen which were not possible to happen before i thank you arijit so much for your time we had a wonderful about a one hour of discussing about the possibility of how ai can actually help in preclinical imaging and thank you for all the wonderful insights that you have given Thank you Professor Mukhopadhyay for hosting me today it was a pleasure talking to you i mean i talked about things that were on my mind and hadn't really talked about before so this was absolutely not scripted this was absolutely impromptu so thanks for allowing for you know having this discussion and i hope to have more productive discussions in future with you with the mikai community with your group and you know with other researchers yeah all of them can can feel free to reach out to me so thank you thanks for doing this wonderful and have a nice day Arjit yeah same to you have a good day